of God who loves us, who once walked among us, and who spurs us ever on. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I love this painting, and I can't show it to you, so I want to tell you about it. So first, this painting was done at the end of the 19th century by a man named Luc Olivier Merchant. Is that right? Is that Merchant? Yeah. Okay. He was obviously a Frenchman, and um, I, I check my pronunciation always with Laura. He um, was a Frenchman, end of the 19th century. And he painted in kind of an Art Deco sort of a way. He, he had some real, um, some real religious overtones to a lot of his paintings. This one is, is called Rest in the Escape to Egypt. It's the name of the painting. Some of you may know it. It's, um, it's dark because it's at night. I think it's really at dawn that this painting happens. So this is what I want you to do, if you're, if you're willing to do this. I want you to close your eyes and listen as I describe the painting. And then I want you to open your eyes again when I finish describing the painting. I noticed at the last service, several people did not open their eyes again. <laughs> and I didn't know whether they were still contemplating the painting or just taking a really good nap. So just think about that. But, but listen attentively now, however you want to do that. stars in the top of the painting are very, very faint. But you can see them, tiny little white dots. And it, it, it stands to reason that they would be because there seems to be the sun just rising in the background. The back of the painting is this beautiful sort of purple velvet turning into black in the corners of the painting. But right in the middle, it seems that the sun is just beginning to rise because there's just a little bit of light coming into the background. The foreground is desert. And this desert, as, as you and I might think about desert, there's very little vegetation. And what there is, it's scruffy. So the painting, the entire foreground is covered with sand. Just sand. On the left hand part of the painting that dominates about a third of the painting on the left is the statue of the Sphinx. Now if you remember, the statues of the Sphinx are part animal and part human. They were very, very large. The bottom half of, of, of the statue is a lion with his paws stretched out in front of him in repose the head of the Sphinx is a human head. It appears to be the head of a pharaoh. This person has that, that kind of long goatee pharaoh beard and is wearing that typical headdress that you um, would think of when you think of the head of the pharaoh. This, this statue is there. He's on his haunches. His eyes are closed in seeming contemplation. And he has this, this very contemplative kind of half-smile on his lips. He's cold. He sits on a pedestal, or he, he's perched on a pedestal that has sand leaped up, sort of lumped up all around it. 
So it, it, it appears to have been um, not taken care of for a long time. A deserted statue with, with sand covering most of the base. In between the arms of this statue, of this sphinx, there's a figure. It's a woman. And she's lying there in deep sleep with her head against the chest, the cold stone chest of the statue. You can see her, her bare feet hanging out from underneath her gown. And, and she's obviously sleeping. Her, her feet are, are, are limp and, and very much at rest. And her head is turned towards the right as she leans against the statue. She has a white undergarment on and a dark blue overrobe on top of that. And her head is covered with a white cloth. But you can see her face, and she's quite beautiful. Around her chest, around her middle, there is this radiant light, and it is the most vivid light in the entire painting. It's emanating out like, like a small sun from, from her chest, and, and you can see just the faint figure of a baby, the baby lying there on her stomach. And from that figure emanates this beautiful, golden, warm light. She's sleeping. She's totally exhausted. That deep, deep sleep. Now, towards the right-hand part of the painting, there's the figure lying on the ground, on the sand, with a brown cloak, a large cloak, wrapped around this person. His feet, you can tell it's a man by the size, his feet are hanging out, cold um, and bare. He's lying on a very thin rug. He's wrapped in this shawl, and you can tell he's hunched up and cold. There's just a tiny remnant of a fire in front of him. Over towards the right-hand part of the painting, there's a scrawny burrow who's tethered to a stake. And he's eating what, what scrawny vegetation there is for him to find food from. And next to him, there's a very rudimentary-looking saddle. It's on the ground, having been taken off him. The scene is one of, of comfort, one of sleep, one of rest. But you can tell, or I can tell anyway, with, with the rising of the sun, that soon there will be activity. That right now, this warm and beautiful woman with this sun lying on her chest, glowing, is against this inscrutable sphinx, this hard, cold, stone, mysterious statue, looking at nothing, smiling at nothing, dominant over the desert scene, but cold, thoughtless, and not connected to anything, just standing there, and, and would have no relationship to anything without this woman, Mary, sleeping on his chest. So open your eyes, if they were closed. The painting is, is beautiful, and, and it, it has so much meaning for me um, from today's readings, from what we read in the Gospel. 
It is indeed Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus on their way to Egypt, as we read in Matthew's Gospel. They are fleeing for their lives. They have been told, Joseph's been told in a dream that his baby is in danger and that he is to travel to Egypt for safety. But for Matthew, it's, it's much, much more than, than the possibility of this being a historical story, and there is no evidence that this happened. We have no archaeological evidence, or not even in any other gospel do we have mentioned this trip to Egypt. But it has huge import for Matthew. You see, Matthew's whole perspective was one of being in relationship with, with the Jewish religion that he was obviously a part of. The gospel is structured in such a way, its content is put together in such a way that it's reminiscent of, of both the Hebrew Bible and also the book of Psalms. It's divided quite distinctly into five parts, just like the Torah is in five parts, just like the Psalms are in five parts. And, and so what Matthew is doing is he's using his narrative, his story, to talk about something that's brand new. He, of course, reaches down into what is his to talk about something that is so revolutionary he can find no words other than his own story to explain what's happening. It's so new. All he can think about is what his very being tells him about himself. You see, Jesus is traveling to Egypt, but soon... Jesus will be coming out of Egypt. And so Jesus is Moses. Jesus is that who will now find freedom and, and a new universe for his people. That for Matthew, an understanding of, of who Moses was, Moses leading his people out of bondage and out of slavery, for, for Matthew, that's Jesus coming back out of Egypt. Jesus has got to get into Egypt to come out. But as Jesus comes out of Egypt, he is the new Moses. But Matthew knows, because Matthew has lived through the tragedy of the destruction of Jerusalem, that Moses' experiment, Moses' experience, ultimately failed because Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans a decade or so before Matthew even started to think about putting his gospel down. But for Matthew, Jesus' exodus out of Egypt will triumph because Jesus will introduce the world to something brand new. Something brand new. That, that ultimate sense of freedom that is the relationship, the intimate relationship with God that Jesus, God incarnate, expresses. Not Moses, but God in flesh now comes out of Egypt to promise to the people freedom and love and comfort. What we don't get in what we read this morning is that powerful, powerful few verses that was just barely hinted, and that was the slaughter of the innocents. You remember the story, what, what happened, why the Holy Family goes to Egypt is, is because Herod, in his fury, when the wise men don't come back, in his rage, 
Herod decides that he will destroy all male children two years old and younger who live in Bethlehem and who live in the Bethlehem area. And so he sends his soldiers in to destroy all of these children, to murder them all, to slaughter them all. Who does that remind you of? Who killed all the two-year-old boys in his kingdom? Pharaoh. Moses barely escaped murder because Pharaoh killed all the two-year-old Israelite boys in Egypt. That's the relationship between Herod and Pharaoh. For Matthew, Herod is the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh gets defeated because Jesus lives. So what happens is now is, is that this new thing, this brand new revolutionary thing, continues because Pharaoh cannot win. Pharaoh is the sphinx. Pharaoh is, is the dominating force that is for evil and for darkness in the world. Pharaoh represents all that is bad, all that holds nature down. Herod represents Pharaoh. Jesus represents that which brings us from that darkness, from that evil, from that domination. Jesus' return from Egypt that we read about this morning is the promise to us of new life, even, even in the midst of darkness. And we all know something about darkness. Matthew returns to the, to the story of the people of Israel from the time of the Babylonian captivity. We read this morning from Jeremiah, a beautiful passage from Jeremiah. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But, but what Matthew does is Matthew quotes that very same chapter. Listen to what he says. He quotes that very same chapter In the reading that we didn't have, it was in the middle. And this is what he says. He says, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem. And then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. It's, it's a lament that it rends the heart. But what Matthew doesn't do is he doesn't complete the passage that we got this morning. Listen to what Jeremiah says, though, as he finishes. He says, And then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, and I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. The end of the story is one of joy and comfort and peace and freedom. Living in that terrible, painful place of the death of those children, of the end of the people who are, are moving to Babylon, what Jeremiah says is that God will reach down and pull those people out of that darkness, out of that pain and sorrow, and give them life, and give them joy, and give them peace and freedom. 
freedom to be the people that God has called them to be. And that's exactly what Jesus does moving out of the captivity in Egypt, moving into the new place. What Matthew wants us to understand is, is that this birth, all bets are off. All that was is no longer. And what is now is new and revolutionary and joyful and full of peace and comfort that when this leader comes from Egypt, this leader brings with him complete and total freedom. Freedom for humanity to be humanity. That God becomes human so that humanity can truly become human, so that we can truly become who God calls us to be. The old rules, the old, the old bounds, the old things that hold us down, Matthew wants us to know, they don't exist anymore. It's like the ultimate universal do-over. It's like now Jesus brings something brand new, and it's so revolutionary, we can't even imagine. And so we don't. And so it's a cute story, and it's a lovely painting, but it really has no meaning for us. Matthew wants it to change our lives. And we read it as a Christmas story. Or we skip over the part that talks about children being murdered because it really is distasteful and it really is awful. But we miss the point. And tragically, we don't only miss Matthew's point, we miss the point of the incarnation. And that's that everything is new. That if we can just see ourselves in that new place of freedom, we can be the people that we are called to be. Now, 2,000 years later, can we see ourselves as being truly free, truly loved? The intimacy of this relationship between God and Jesus and God and God's people is, is, is so evident. And yet for us, it's like a fog. It's like we can't get through it because we don't trust ourselves, or maybe we don't trust God. So, so what is there about this new year, 2015, that we can find in ourselves that ability to love with the kind of abandonment that God loves us with? That kind of, of, of total sense of freedom. Hold nothing back. Because the reality is, is that when we love that way, there's only more love, not less. And, and the Sphinx and the Pharaoh want us to believe just the opposite. That when you give it away, you lose it and you'll never get it back. And we live in a world that's dominated by Pharaoh. Just as Joseph and Mary did. Just as Moses did. And God calls us to a new place of freedom. So what does that look like? Well, I want you to go back to the painting with me. I want you to go back to the figure that's lying on that cold sand in front of the dying fire, just wrapped with a cloak. It's Joseph. It's Mary's husband, Joseph, someone who I feel very akin to. Do you realize that, that not one word is spoken from Joseph's mouth in any of the Gospels? One of the most important figures in the Bible, the man who raised Jesus, who taught Jesus how to be a man, the man who, who nurtured him and loved him and picked him up when he fell down. The man who, who, who had total influence over this child. Not one word is spoken from his mouth 
in any of the Gospels. Not one. And yet, he is fundamental in the raising of this child. That his position is one that is, is, is absolutely essential to the story. Joseph comes across, Matthew says, as a man of righteousness. As a man, righteousness means as a man who has an intimate relationship with God. A man who, who walks so closely to God that they hold hands together as they walk along, Joseph and God. And in that relationship that Joseph has, he has total trust and total love. So when, when, when God, in a dream, tells him three times to do something outlandish, totally outlandish, Joseph does it every single time. <coughs> Marry the woman who is bearing another man's child. Okay. Take your family and run away to Egypt and live there for who knows how long. Okay. Now it's time to take your child and your family back from Egypt. We know it was dangerous. I told you you shouldn't go back. Now you should go back. And Joseph says, okay. Total obedience. Total acceptance of God's place in his life. And through that acceptance, he becomes so powerfully important. There are indications in the Bible about adoption. And, and Joseph, through, through this sense of, of Jesus being the son of the Holy Spirit, that Joseph is the adopted father, right? So in several places in the Bible, they talk about adoption. Paul loved to talk about adoption, about how we are adopted children of God. But adoption in the Bible is very different than the we think about adoption today. Adoption in the Bible has more to do with community coming together. You see, in, in, in Judaism, in Leverite law, if a man died, then his brother married the dead man's wife and took his children on as his own because they became part of that family unit. In a Roman understanding, it was possible to adopt a young man, but he would become then the, the, the head of, the, of that family, the progenitor of that family. Adoption wasn't about the health or the well-being of the child so much as we find that focus today, but about the family, about keeping the family together, about the family unit as being inclusive and being strong and being healthy. So what would it mean for us to be thinking about that kind of sense of adoption in our lives? We have been for so long divorced from one another and divorced from the world around us. We have for so long been separated from creation, from the environment. We have for so long been separated, divorced from one another in terms of caring for one another, in terms of caring for those who can't care for themselves. What would it mean to follow Joseph's understanding and know that, that through adoption we all become one, that we essentially adopt one another as family, and that we adopt our environment as family, that we are intimately, intricately involved in our environment as family, that when something goes wrong in our family, something goes wrong in our environment and vice versa. What would it mean to be so connected, so intimate with the world around us that we thought we were all one family? What would it mean? You know, I, I had this incredible relationship with Joseph. And I'm actually, you know, a little ticked off that he never gets any better kind of uh, <laughs> attention than he does. 
because I relate to Joseph in, in, in a very close way. You know, I was a carpenter. You know, I remember the day when I was 26 years old in my carpentry shop, standing at a machine, and deciding that, or realizing that I had to make a decision. I was quickly falling in love with the woman who had three children, a four-year-old and two two-year-olds. And I was realizing, as a 26-year-old, not married, never been married, never wanting to get married, that as my relationship with this woman continued, if it did continue, then I would have a relationship with four people and not just one. That the, the decisions that I was making at that very moment, standing at that drill press, making door frames, that the decision I was making that day was an implication for me, Kay, and three children. That the five of us were now involved in this decision. And as a 26-year-old, it was scary as hell. But I knew if that relationship was going to go any further, it included this family. And if you know me, you know it was the best decision I ever made in my life. That kind of risk, that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy is what God is calling us to all the time. All the time. To that kind of love with and in God, because God beckons us to love him as Joseph loved God, walking hand in hand, inseparable. And that kind of love just calls us to love one another and to love the world around us. So as we face this new year, can we risk being in love with the world, with humanity, in such a way that we know whatever we do, whatever happens to us, happens to them, to it, and vice versa. Soon, the sun will rise, and the warmth of it will awaken Mary, and the hungry baby, and Joseph. And he will put that old ratty saddle on the burrow, and they will continue their journey. And so will we. But just as God walked every step of the way with them to Egypt and back, I promise you, God will walk with us every step of the way with our tired old burrows and our ratty saddles. 